Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. I am just so confident in what the scriptures say is exactly what happened. And and these days when I even hear, you know, new criticisms, there aren't that many. It's kind of always recycled stuff. I, it just doesn't, it doesn't even phase me. It's like water off a duck's back. It's just like, well, that's ridiculous. Because the biblical text can be trusted. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Daniel chapter 5. Now here's Pastor Brian. So the chapter begins with a reference to King Belshazzar. And before we, we jump into the whole story here, uh, let's talk for a moment about this particular person. Now, you probably remember that early on in the different studies in Daniel, we talked about how Daniel has been highly criticized by liberal scholars. They have denied that this book was actually written by a 5th century uh, B.C. person named Daniel. They want to attribute it to somebody in the Maccabean period, which was about the 160s B.C. And you might wonder, well, why, why would they do that? Well, they do it for this reason, because they don't believe in uh, the supernatural. Now, just understand this. There are Christian theologians. Now, I say Christian lightly here. They identify as Christian theologians who do not believe the Bible. I mean, that's pretty darn amazing, but it is a fact. It just seems like such a contradiction. I mean, why would you, why would you even be a Christian theologian if you didn't believe the Bible? But so there are such people, and there have been such people for a long, long time. And so there are these, these certain theologians, many, many of them are dead now, but there, there are still plenty of them around today, who have a presupposition that there is no, um, that, that miracles just do not happen. And one of the miracles that they would see not being able to happen is predictive prophecy. Now, because Daniel, um, if Daniel is indeed a 5th century B.C. prophet, then that means he is predicting future events, and his predictions are completely accurate. But that's too much for the liberal theological mind, so they say no, these can't be predictive prophecies. These have to be just historical recordings. So somebody in, like I said, the, the 160s BC, they came along and identified themselves as a Daniel. And they wrote this stuff down, which was now history. That's why it's so accurate. 
Now, one of the things that this group said unequivocally that there was never a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. That they just absolutely so. This, this, this claim here in the fifth chapter, or the statement in the fifth chapter, is erroneous. Uh, there's nothing historical about it. It just never happened, and it proves that the Bible is an unreliable document. That's what they said. In 1850, there was a prominent theologian who made that statement. Now, as God would have it, just four years later, four years later, a man who was doing some archaeological excavation in this area of what we know today as Iraq, he discovered these little cylinders on which in cuneiform, cuneiform they wrote, this cuneiform was written on these cylinders that were made of clay or some material like that. And he found these cylinders that referred to For the first time, there was a reference to Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the first historical reference or or reference outside of the Bible to Belshazzar. So... Okay, they can't argue that there was no such thing as a Belshazzar, but now what they argue is that he was never king. He was never king, so Daniel's references to him being king are wrong Um, because we've got uh, ancient records of the kings of Babylon and uh, Belshazzar was not named among them. But then once again later, documentation was found that Belshazzar was what you call a co-regent with his father. And his father, Nabonidus, wasn't all that into Babylon itself, so he left Babylon for a 10-year period and moved to northern Arabia and lived his life there. And when he left, He put Belshazzar in charge. So this was discovered. That's why, as we're going to see in a moment, when all of this stuff comes down that happens with Belshazzar in his court and Daniel comes before him and Belshazzar is offering to anyone who can interpret what's going on to make them the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? Why not the second ruler? Because Belshazzar was the co-regent and his father was actually still the king. So he couldn't make him second in the kingdom, but he could make him third in the kingdom. So all of this to say, and I, I am more convinced of this than I've ever been in my life. And I've been a Christian now for a long time and I've read the Bible a lot and I've studied it and I've studied um, the critics and, and all of that. 
these days, I am just so confident in what the scriptures say is exactly what happened. And, and these days when I even hear, you know, new criticisms, there aren't that many. It's kind of always recycled stuff. I, it just doesn't, it doesn't even phase me. It's like water off a duck's back. It's just like, well, that's ridiculous. Because the biblical text can be trusted. And these kinds of things, these kinds of denials of, of historical accuracy and things, these have come and gone over and over again throughout the centuries. And there's always a point where they are refuted by the evidence. And I think it was somebody like Josh McDowell. He might have been quoting somebody else, but he, he put it like this. Every time an archaeologist's spade goes into the dirt, a liberal theologian is buried. <laughs> and I think that that's a pretty accurate evaluation of the situation. So now I, I don't know if you're going to run into somebody today that's going to try to convince you that Daniel is not really Daniel as the scripture says, that Belshazzar didn't really exist and things like that. But you know, you might. And so if you do run into somebody like that, you can give them the facts. All right. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So King Belshazzar threw an amazing party. Thousand of his nobles. This must have been like the party to beat all parties. Now, think about this. What the, the text doesn't tell us, but what becomes obvious at the end is that Belshazzar threw this party when the city of Babylon was under siege by the Medes and the Persians. But Belshazzar was so cocky and confidence and confident, self-confident, that he didn't believe there was any way that they could penetrate the city. So he was going to show his um, lack of concern over being any in any danger by just, hey, let's have a party. Who cares what the Medes and the Persians are doing? They'll never get in here. This city is impenetrable. That's what he thought. So while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father. So when it says his father, just understand his grandfather. Um, the Hebrew language doesn't really have a, 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 grand, a word for grandfather. So, but that's um, who Nebuchadnezzar would have been to Belshazzar, his grandfather. And he had taken these um, gold and silver goblets. He had taken them, Nebuchadnezzar did, as we know. He took them from the temple in Jerusalem. So Belshazzar calls for those that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. So, you know, if you think about it, I mean, this is just this, you know, this is 
this grand, grand event. These are all of the important, powerful, elite people in the kingdom. And they're all together and they're all partying and they're all drinking. And at some point, Belshazzar gets this insane idea that we ought to get those vessels that my grandfather took from the temple in Jerusalem. So in his drunken state, he is moving toward blasphemy. He's being moved toward blasphemy. He's going to mock by taking these holy vessels and by toasting to the Babylonian gods, he's mocking the God of Israel. Now, maybe he's doing this again because of the the Persian threat. Maybe he's wanting to remind everybody about the greatness of Babylon and the fact that, hey, nobody's going to conquer us. We're the ones who conquered everybody else. And these goblets, they remind us of our victory over Jerusalem and over the gods of uh, the Hebrews. That's how they would have thought of it, or over the God of the Hebrews. So who knows exactly what's going on in his mind, but somehow he's emboldened to call for these vessels. Now, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this is just a drunken, blasphemous orgy. That's what's going on. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this today. So, of course, while the people of Israel are in the land, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, northern kingdom, remember, goes into captivity before the southern kingdom. But while they're in the land... All of the clearly divine activity that's happening in the world is happening in that place and with those people. You have the prophets. The prophets are prophesying. And, you know, of course, they've got the long history of God's intervening and working miraculously in their midst and all of that. But I was thinking about now, now that the people are out of the land and they're in Babylon, now, of course, the Lord is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But he keeps showing himself to be there with them because he keeps showing up among the Babylonian kings and in their courts through the different dreams and through the appearance in the fiery furnace and and all of that. And so, you know, Belshazzar was not a real smart guy. He should have put all of these pieces together and thought, yeah, let's party and, and, you know, let's get some vessels from Dagon's temple or let's get some vessels from Baal's temple, but let's not touch the, the Yahweh stuff. That's what he should have understood, but obviously he didn't. And so suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, The king watched the hand as it wrote. 
His face turned, let's just say sheet white, pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. Wow. And rightfully so. Man, what a moment that must have been. What, what an incredible moment. And let's just say this, and then I'll say a little bit more about it in a minute. But, you know, this just reminds us of how easily God can just disrupt what human beings are doing and make his sovereignty known, make his greatness known. It's, it's not a problem for him to do this. He can do it anytime, and he does it right here. And what a creative way. Just the, uh, a, a, it, there's no body connected to it. It's a hand, and it's writing in the plaster on the wall. The plaster is not wet plaster. It's dry, but he's writing, etching. Um, but remember, the finger of God etched the commandments in the stone as well. And remember, in the New Testament, the finger of God wrote in the dirt as well. And so, Belshazzar is, he is freaked out, to say the least. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. So seems like the queen wasn't here. Now, the queen could either be um, his mother, could also be his grandmother. So Nebuchadnezzar would have died about, at, at the most, maybe 15 years before this. Um, but could have even been a less amount of time than that. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar's death to the reign of Nabonidus, and there, was, there were uh, two other, actually three other kings that reigned, but their, their reign was so brief. One was two years, one was four years, and one was three months. So basically about six years passed before Nabonidus comes to the throne, and then Belshazzar and he, um, you know, probably after some time, they, they developed this co-regency. So it could be his grandmother. And it seems like it might be because she knows stuff that evidently Belshazzar, well, he would have known it, but he forgot it. So she says, may the king live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. I was wondering about the translation of that. How do you stop yourself from looking pale? <laughs> you know, but 
<laughs> there must be some translation thing there. And then she says this, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Isn't that interesting? There is a man in your kingdom. You should know this, Belshazzar. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your grandfather, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Wow, man, what a rebuke from grandma. <laughs> She's like, call for Daniel. It's, it's, now, notice the closeness between the names Belshazzar and Belteshazzar. So Belteshazzar was, of course, the name given to uh, Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar. And the names mean virtually the same thing. There, there really isn't any real distinct difference. So in a sense, you have two people called Belshazzar or Belteshazzar here. But it's interesting that to me that the grandmother is using his Hebrew name, not his Babylonian name. Call for Daniel. And that would make sense when we think back about what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. And as we saw in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, I think we would probably all agree, I, this is how I feel, Nebuchadnezzar had a genuine conversion to faith in Yahweh. And so this queen seems to also have at least that very high regard for, um, for Daniel and Daniel's God. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my grandfather the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you were able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel is apparently in some sort of retirement at this point. And so maybe, you know, at the death of Nebuchadnezzar, he, he was finished in his uh, duties in the court. And now he's in um, some sort of retirement. But remember, Daniel was like a really close friend of Nebuchadnezzar. December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? 
four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's easy for the holiday season to draw our attention to shopping, parties, programs, and events, while the Christmas story is relegated to the statue of a myth or fairy tale for children. But is the Christmas story actually grounded in history? Well, in her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles four basic questions surrounding Christmas. She deals with the questions surrounding if Jesus was a historical figure, if we can take seriously the historical accounts of the gospel, and if the virgin birth can actually be believed, and why it all matters. If you know a person who is skeptical that the Christmas story is true, or if you are a skeptic yourself, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Daniel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.